You're listening to On The Way, a podcast for the Center for Bible Study. I'm your host, Max Botner. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. We have got another excellent episode for you today. We're continuing on with our six-part series, Why We Love Scripture. And today we are talking, we being my uh, good friend and colleague, Tim Gombas, and I, why we love the Gospel of Mark. Mark is kind of a favorite gospel for me, and I know for Tim as well. Tim's actually written a commentary on Mark. Um, I'll put a link in the description to his books. He's written a commentary on Mark. He's written on the Apostle Paul. Uh, one, of, one of his books recently won an award, Power and Weakness, won an award with Christianity Today. So Tim's just a really great guy. He's a great scholar, really excels at helping connect biblical scholarship to the life of the church and the life of faith, which is central to the mission of this podcast. And so really excited to have him on to introduce you to uh, to my friend. One quick announcement before we jump into our episode here. We are really excited to announce here at the Center for the Study of the Bible that we have just launched a YouTube channel. Those who are regular listeners of the podcast will recognize much of the discussion. Um, many of the clips up right now are clips from podcasts that have been recorded, but there will also be additional original content created specifically for the YouTube channel as well as the idea is to give people bite-sized manageable videos that they can share with friends, bring into small group discussions or in other various settings that you find appropriate. We wanna give you resources that you can use to help you connect themes in the Bible to the life of faith and to life in the church. So please do, uh, if you're so inclined, we'd so much appreciate if you would consider supporting us there, subscribing to the channel, uh, making use of our videos. This just continues to help us spread the word about the center and get good resources into the hands of people who are looking for in-depth teaching on the Bible. So you can check us out on the YouTube channel. I'll put a link in the description to the channel. You can also look us up on YouTube, both by searching my name, Max Botner, as well as the Center for Bible Study. And uh, with that, and without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into our episode. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody, to the podcast. We're continuing on with our series, Why We Love Scripture. And this week, we're talking about Mark. And I brought another friend and a colleague of mine uh, onto the show, Dr. Tim Gombas. Uh, really excited to have Tim on the show. Tim and I worked for several years together at Grand Rapids Theological Seminary. We also worked with John Hilber, whom you met in the last episode. And um, we just really became good friends. Tim is somebody that I greatly respect, admire, value. Um, he's just an incredible person. And so I'm really excited to introduce him to you all. Um, he's done a lot of really important scholarship. And one of Tim's gifts is connecting biblical scholarship to the life of the church, which is central to the mission of this episode. So that's why I wanted to introduce him to you. Some of his works that I think you'd be very interested in, of course, his commentary on Mark in the Story of God series uh, published by Zondervan. That's particularly germane to this episode, but he's also done a lot of really good work on Paul. Uh, his most recent work on Paul uh, actually won, is it Power and Weakness, Tim, the yeah. title? It, it won an award in Christianity Today um, for helping us see the relevance of Paul 
really Paul's theology of the cross, maybe broadly speaking, uh, its relevancy for ministry and for life in the church today. So it's just an incredible job of connecting a lot of greater insights and biblical studies to the life of faith. And then he's also written other works. Um, the drama of uh, Ephesians is a really good book. It's actually probably my favorite book to use in class with students on Ephesians. So that's another one. Uh, and he's also written Paul, uh, a guide for the perplexed. Uh, I might be leaving something out to him. You can fill in the blanks, but the, the idea is here. He's a very yeah. gifted scholar, a deep Christian thinker. So I'll have a, a link to his Amazon page in the um, description of this episode. You definitely want to check out his books, buy his books. Uh, and with that, Tim, I just want to introduce you to the episode and say thanks for being here. And oh, yeah, absolutely, would you man. maybe, um, yeah, just begin by giving us a, a quick rundown, your spiritual journey and uh, your your journey to studying the Bible academically as well as uh, God's word, a spiritual text. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, Max. It's so good to see you. I need way more Max Botner in my life than I currently have. Don't we all? Don't we all? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you're, yeah, thank you for saying such kind things uh, about my work. I, um, man, what what's to say? I, uh, let's see here. I, I was brought up in a Christian home, so I had a lot of familiarity with the Bible mm. because my parents were uh, Bible church people. They grew up in a Bible church church and if you, you know, the bible church tradition actually they they were brought up at the church um cicero bible church that was sort of the home of the bible church movement mm. and <clears throat> so like ever since i was i could remember anything you know we had family devotions in the morning where mm. uh, we would my dad would read proverbs uh maybe just read uh, bible stories mm. and um before we went to school, we had to uh, recite our Bible verses from the two Bible memory programs that we were always in as kids. So they weren't and, messing around. You didn't even oh, need to. You didn't even serious. need to go to Awana. Awana came to the. Oh, home. totally. Oh, yeah. I mean, we just. <laughs> and then, um, like at night, uh, if it wasn't sports, we didn't watch television. My, uh, my dad would. Uh, this is so funny. My mom would make. Uh, homemade caramel corn mm. and we would all clamber downstairs and uh, my dad would get out the projector screen and we would watch moody film strips of Bible stories. Like that's what, that was our entertainment. And you put the record on and the narrator and the music yeah. dramatized Bible stories. So like it was, it was Bible all, it was all Bible. All so time. this was before they came up with the idea to make fruits and vegetables, the characters in the show. <laughs> oh, totally. This is before It was that. all okay. this like all right. old timey right. artwork. All right. Film strips, not even like films. Yeah. Um. So and I remember, I remember when I went to college went to a Christian college and I took Bible courses and I, and um, um, what amazed me was sort of taking, taking Bible courses in a more academic setting. Mm. What amazed me was like how much was in there and like how much, how, how much it was the case that like um, while I had like disparate verses memorized from all over the place um, you know, there were, there were texts that were holes and that had um, you know, there were, gospel narratives and there were uh, letters in the new testament um i had an old testament backgrounds course that just blew my mind i could not uh believe how much sort of insight came from 
understanding the ancient or Eastern background to uh, Old Testament narratives, Old Testament literature. And that just blew me away. Yeah. And I couldn't, I felt like I, I just wanted more. So um, I went to seminary. And that was your, that did, was your first mistake, right? Yeah, that's first, right. First... <laughs> that's right. Where your faith goes to die. <laughs> it's actually, it's really an interesting that would be a really fascinating discussion, Joe, talking to people that have been through and have survived seminary experiences hmm. um, because there's a whole unique kind of um, uh, seminary can be, oh man, it, it can be a difficult time. Yeah. Um, there's sort of, it, it can be, it doesn't always have to be um, where sort of, uh, there's sort of like an emotional experiential component to to that kind of thing. That mm. just can kind of it can mess with your head. Sure. Um, but I went to seminary without any inclination of doing like ministry or anything like that. I, I just felt like I wanted to know more. And uh there again was just blown away by how much there was to know and, and how much more when you got into the ancient world. Um, and you really explored various texts, like just how much was going on. And then how right. and then of course being exposed to like interpretive traditions. Mm-hmm. Um coming to understand you know christian traditions and how they handle texts and are are um, you trying to tell us that we all actually interpret the bible we we don't just read it this we does happen it? oh it my can happen my mind is blown yeah so i i remember looking back i never thought this but i i remember that i realized this is how i sort of felt was that um at some point god shook the bible and my evangelical tradition fell out because i never like i i'd never had any thought or inclination of thinking that um, the tradition that I was in, which was not a tradition, it was just the Bible, right. but the tradition that I was in, um, you know, it read the Bible in a certain way and the ways that it read the Bible um, were historically shaped. In fact, I remember in like 1996 or five, um, I read Mark Knowles, the scandal of the evangelical mind uh-huh. where he really, he really goes after, kind of like a dispensational way of reading the Bible. And uh, I can't remember if he goes into Scottish common sense realism. Yeah. I think as, he touches on that. That comes yeah. up in other texts, uh, other books Yeah. Like Marston's well. work and all yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. But I remember, um, I haven't looked at the copy. Actually, I, I'll do that after this, but I, I was enraged. Mm. I was so angry. Years later, I got to tell him that, that he just pissed me off to no end. But because it was that it was a, it was like an exposure of the way that I was taught to read the Bible had like historical roots. And I was so upset. Um, but it was like a year or two after that, that I read Marsden's book, fundamentalism and American culture. Yeah. And everything at that point, I mean, just, you know, the illuminations were immense. And I realized I was reading a family history mm. that this is, this is kind of how we've come to read the Bible um, but just being exposed to, to that and then being exposed to other traditions was just so illuminating, so helpful. And then, uh, came to see also that, um, there are, there are sort of always and ever new ways of reading the Bible. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> and, and that, um, as part of my tradition, it was sort of like uh, we we got we have to get to know Bible knowledge, but then also um, we're not a tradition. There's no teaching magisterium, but you have to get to know what all of the 
you know, conservative older white men have said about it over right. years. That that's what you have to get to know. Right. And coming to see that, um, just the, the importance of like the development of agility and I mean, really humility. Yeah. Uh, in a, in moving around where I am to sort of look at the text from different angles and perspectives and to listen to different communities and different people, um, all that was such a thrill. Yeah. Um, because like there are so many interpretive difficulties that I ended up just um discovering like newer and more fruitful ways of reading. And so I just that made me even more excited. Like familiar texts, like I've read Galatians or Romans, or how many times have I been in those texts? But like I've never seen it from this perspective until I just sort of was moved by a certain journal article or whatever, just a little bit over this way. Look at it from this angle. Yeah. And that excitement for me has never abated. And so in 2000, um, I uh, had a young family and was like, I got to get a job at some point and realized that what I really wanted to do uh, was be involved in sort of college ministry, mentoring, but not as a pastor. Um, And I wanted to teach. So I went and and got a PhD and... um, Several years later, I got my first teaching job, and that was a really fun time of teaching, mm-hmm. and then also like mentoring college students, which I I was so energized by. That was a lot of fun. But there again, in my PhD program, just coming into contact with interpretive possibilities that were were just like world changing to me. That just it, yeah. Um, and so yeah, that's cool. so I, I've just it's been a lot of fun, kind of um, being on that. Uh, I always try to find a synonym for the word journey, but being on that journey, you could discovery. say you're, you could say you're on the way, perhaps <laughs> uh, just a suggestion. I am on the way and on the way on, <laughs> on, I am on, on the way here, and I'm on right. the way. <laughs> yeah. I'm on this trek on this sojourn um, of discovering. It's just, it's a ton of fun. And yeah, you know, there have been um, people I've been so lucky to have people in my life over the years, you know, that I've been able to make into friends who just have shared with me their stories and have also been like provocateurs to also, hmm. you know, to, to sort of keep that um, excitement of discovery ever fresh. And like, you know, several years ago when you and I met and got to teach together, I mean, it was just, that was one of the great delights about being, you know, on a faculty together Yeah, was just the, you know, the, the office conversations or the hallway conversations or what are you reading or um, you know, all of that has been, uh, such a serious uh, thrill. Yeah. And a- another testament to something we talk a lot about on the podcast, just the, the necessity of community oh, and yeah. how-, how we spur one another on in community, encourage one another. You know, one thing you said uh, that I just want to pick up on, because I think it's it'll be interesting for our listeners uh, before we jump into Mark, what you're kind of highlighting for us is, I think, a challenge that a lot of us face when we come to faith in the larger American uh, evangelical complex, right? Or or even other faiths that have been maybe resistant to some aspects of it, but have been shaped by, by other aspects of it. There's something very American about reading the Bible as an isolated individual who doesn't have a tradition. So you're talking about coming out of a tradition where the tradition was there is no tradition and everything was just sort of self-evident 
And sometimes when you have the the scales, that moment where the scales begin to fall from your eyes, that can become very disillusioning and kind of scary and intimidating. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think one of the challenges we face in American Christianity is we've been we've been trained to have two things going on at once, which are very paradoxical, but I think they they fit together. On the one hand, you mentioned the scandal of the evangelical mind. So you could say a lot of aspects of American Christianity that we're pushing up against are highly anti-intellectual. And yet, paradoxically, the faith traditions we've inherited are highly intellectualized, meaning we define our faith particularly in terms of faith statements, beliefs, propositions, that things we have to claim about God. And what that does when we reduce faith to that is well, it leads to decon the deconstruction kind of stuff that we're seeing yeah. going on. Oh, I mean, yeah. uh, it, it it makes people feel like there's nowhere to grow intellectually in your thinking or more broadly because any kind of growth is ipso facto deviation from the yeah. faith. Right. So what do you do if you're a curious person or just a thinking person, somebody that wants to dive deeply into scripture, actually read the Bible, not just memorize yeah. bits and pieces, but really read the text and uh, be part of a community that's formed by it. You're in a really difficult spot in some ways because the faith tradition that you've inherited says any movement away from the party line is actually a denouncement of the faith. Yeah. Because it's all cognitive. It's all cognitive. It's all abstract. Right. Yeah, it's it's hard to... It, it, that's a total paradox. That's really fascinating that it is anti-intellectual and it's all intellectualized. Yes. Um, yeah, it's it's such a bizarre thing. Yeah, uh, to me... Um, you know what was actually helpful for me was um, when, I, when I started my PhD was to read as much as I could about Juda Judaism. Mm. And... Uh, I remember coming across this. I, I remember exactly where I was in, on the top floor of the library there at uh, at St. Andrews, and I, I remember um, this. Uh, the, someone, the statement of the book about the diversity of traditions within Judaism. Yeah, and was just like it is so interesting. And, and all, of course, there are all kinds of sects that would that would have said uh, that sect or that that group is actually not. Yeah. you know they're not they're not Jews right um that's one way of doing it but I mean if you think about what's really interesting for me and thinking about that much later I was thinking about how beautiful it is like contemporary Judaism it it's like you could be an atheist and you're Jewish you can right. be that's um, my family for the most part right where yeah. I came out of a family most of whom are um, are are atheists but they're Jewish they're deeply Jewish yeah. um you know our family some of some of them didn't make it out of the concentration camps others you know did and came on boats to canada you know and yeah and and so to to say that we're not jewish would be deeply offensive like that's totally rooted in our tradition and yet how judaism has navigated the modern world you know you have a, a variety of ways of doing yeah it, of being and, a but jew they're jewish right. yeah but they're but it's like right. you're not like out of the family right you're not out of the the people right and i remember thinking it's really unfortunate that in um, a, a, well, I'm just spitballing here, but I wonder if it's because one factor 
is that Judaism is so it's so deeply ingrained that it's so it's it's like way of life and it's it identity. Is. It's fiddler on the roof, right? Yeah. You, you're always navigating. You're, you know, the, I love the way the movie starts. The fiddler's on the roof playing, and at the end of the movie, when they're going off onto a new journey, kind of into the unknown, uh, some it's taking the tradition, but it's moving into a new unknown yeah. direction. The fiddlers they're following them, playing playing the yeah. fiddle, right? Yeah, but it's it's way of life and yep. it's in its adaptation yep. to new context context yep. and all that. And then also it's like it's commitment to people. Like mm-hmm. like you belong. Mm-hmm. You belong. With all the diversity of gifts or um doubts or measures of faith or um mm. whatever, because it's like unless you are someone that is just gonna do in- immense damage to other people, like you're part of this. Mm-hmm. And it's really unfortunate that um when Christianity sort of like uh, or the Christian way, I try, I don't want to use that term Christianity, but when the, when the Christian way, when uh, Christian reality, like stopped being holistic. And that, that's why I don't like the term Christianity because it just, yeah. it, it takes everything up into the brain. Right. It's, it's, it's a right. body of thought. It's an ideology, but it doesn't have attendant ways of life and practices and connections. And it's really unfortunate that um, Christian realities are, are sort of divorced from way of life yeah from connection to people yeah. connection to community rootedness yeah and um it's become this sort of like uh it's become all cognitive and it and it is in i belonging to the identity is all about um the extent to which you have your mental furniture arranged in exactly the way exactly the way my mental furniture is arranged yeah that's really so well it's, said it's mental yeah. And it's so it's like it's anti, it's anti intellectual, but it involves the intellect in some kind of jacked up sort of way. It in fact it involves the intellect in um my my friend Steve uh, um, specializes in information theory, and he talks about these closed systems and open systems, mm. and it's it's um, evangelicalism and American evangelicalism, white evangelicalism has become this kind of closed hermeneutical system, where it's like it's this body of cognition that you have to have in here but that has so little to do with like um abiding covenantal arrangements with one another mm-hmm. and that we're committed to other people no matter no matter how your cognitive furniture is is arranged um and our our journey our stories will always be knit together in some way and we're rooted to community and way of life mm-hmm. um yeah it's really unfortunate that 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 tradition is anti-intellectual but uh, tells itself it puts a high priority on the intellect when it when it doesn't it's just like get all this information in there and now you're a good christian yeah indeed and indeed. get the right information in there which is yeah. really unfortunate but yeah you uh, know we, we we should have a whole segment on our whole a whole episode on this i have to have you back because this is really fascinating it'd be fun to talk about the way even the term like biblical worldview is used oh, in this context because it, oh, yeah there's it's different ways ideological of- there that's is awesome. actually, a, I think, a way of thinking about biblical worldview that's really helpful. But what it's not yeah. is a set of propositions that you yeah. start with. It's the right way, answers. It's the way of seeing the world. It's yeah. the way of being shaped. It's basically what Paul, I think, is trying to do with his communities of yeah. getting them to read all of life through this through the Jesus story. So it, it, right. it becomes the grid through which you start to process everything that you encounter. Yes. And then you reason through it as a community. Um, yeah, that's I think a, what I think a biblical worldview is. Totally, yeah. Biblical worldview, in in a sense, it's not even like a set of lenses. It's like uh, it's like an eyewear store. 
yeah, where there are all kinds good. of lenses. And I yeah. mean, Kevin Ben Hooser, he has got this great term called uh, shoot, oh, uh, seeking to develop canonical wisdom, yeah. where it's like looking at the world through Ecclesiastes, looking at the world through Psalms, looking at the world yeah. through Luke. I mean, it's like it's it's yeah. this it's a set of lenses. It's not a set of answers, right? But um, it's sort of all kinds of possible modes that should generate creativity and generate a warm community and generate fruitful adaptation to, Mm. you know, unforeseen circumstances that, you know, um, a generation before just didn't have to deal with, but yeah, Yeah. biblical worldviews. But I I remember teaching undergrads, Christian, evangelical Christian undergraduates uh, who are um, white conservative Um, and just talking about, uh, you're talking about the gospels and talking about the kinds of things that Jesus said and the way of life that he uh, calls disciples to. And I got that thrown in my face regularly. That's not a biblical. Worldview. <laughs> I'm like, I, I'm just talking about what Jesus said. I here. know. I really find <laughs> that it sounds fasc- liberal. I find it fascinating when I'm just walking people through the text of scripture. Oh yeah. And they feel like I'm challenging the evangelical faith or, yeah. or that I'm not telling the gospel. Yeah. I- oh, I've had totally. students accuse me of that where, why aren't you preaching the gospel? I'm like, dude dude I'm, this is I'm, in there we're, we're going through ephesians yeah. like what do you what do you want me to do yeah your problem seems to be with paul and the holy spirit not with me yeah i know uh, <laughs> well but, it's helpful for me because it's like looking back biographically i i was raised in the bible and then when i encountered all these sort of other ways of thinking just thought this isn't in the bible so i get it yeah. at the same time it's stunning when you run into it yeah yeah, you know, it's like no, this is just a tract of text that we're in, and we're talking about what's in scripture here. Yeah, I I would love, I used to love getting the kind of question that was like, well, that doesn't sound biblical, because isn't there a verse somewhere that says something like, and then there'd be like a mashup of like four different Bible passages along yeah. with like some yeah. biblical, you know, biblical worldview weekend propositions or something. Right. Like, no, right. it's nowhere. <laughs> what you just said is nowhere in the Bible. <laughs> But I'm sure it's biblical. That's anyway, fine. whatever. That's fine. All right. Well, but it's not it's not those individual people. I mean, it's yeah. like the problem is with the the tradition as an ideology that trains yeah. people to think in those terms, which yeah. is unfortunate. Yeah. Well, Culture. I'm gonna I'm gonna rope you back in then to, at some point. We're gonna have to have an episode on what we mean by the term biblical <laughs> and what that even means. <laughs> mostly it's, mostly it's kindness. Yeah. Mostly it's like compassion, you know, just like fair. Yeah. Love God, love your neighbor, that kind of stuff. Um, all right. Well, this is a good, I think actually a good transition point into Mark because Mark is deeply rooted in shaping a kind of community, a kind of response uh, in light of the Jesus story. So maybe together we can just kind of lay out for our listeners and viewers, really a brief outline of the gospel of Mark, and then we can dive more into why we love this gospel so much. So I'll take an initial stab at it and then you can, you can pitch in as well. Um, so one of the things that's really interesting about Mark. Uh, well, from... just to say, Max, yeah. I'll be interested to hear what you have to say, because, I mean, Mark is sort of famously resistant to like, you know, like outline or whatever or structure. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, I, I yeah. would just love to hear your thoughts. I, I mean, think it could t- take a kind of standard view in some ways. But I, I, I th- so I think one of the things that's so interesting about Mark is how little it's been used in most of church history. Oh, totally. Um, it's incredible. Right. So we we're coming at it in, in the modern period where it's kind of been established as a given, I think for good reasons that Mark was the first gospel written, um, at least the first that we, ha- we have. Um, 
Luke says many have written before me. So we assume in the many was was Mark. Um, and the fact that he he titles the book Gospel of Jesus Christ, I think, is also really interesting. He's taking this language of good news announcement from the prophet Isaiah of God's coming kingdom, which also happens to intersect with other good news announcements like of the Roman Empire, for example, the mm -hmm. the, the new age brought about by Caesar Augustus. And he's he's locating Jesus's story right here in this kind of unfolding drama of what God's doing in the world. And it's like, here is the good news announcement. And it's just like, boom, launching Jesus onto the scene for ministry. Mm -hmm. um, although I would say those first three verses are really critical. I think you have the kind of heading of the book, followed by the interpretive grid through scripture texts of, yeah. of, of what's going what's gonna to unfold there. And um, the way the story kind of develops, I mean, most scholars, I think, would agree there's sort of a two-part structure to Mark. Um, typically, we see, uh, this is a verse I'm sure we'll come back to, the confession of Peter is kind of closing off or rounding off the first half of the book. Um, the disciples have been unable to discern who Jesus is up to this point. And now all of a sudden, Peter's eyes, scales seem to have fallen and he, he sees in part, oh, Jesus is the Messiah figure. Um, they, they haven't been able to figure out who he is. Nobody's been able to figure out who he is, except for these larger cosmic entities or evil spirits who keep saying, you know, you're the son of God, uh, the holy one of God. So that that forms the middle part. But then it's like, all right, you've got the you've got it right. Jesus is the Messiah. But now the second part turns to the cross, really. And it mm -hmm. really becomes all about Jesus as the crucified Messiah which is not just a, a cognitive piece of information. Oh, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. This becomes a whole way of seeing the world. So what develops there is really the, the primary bulk of discipleship teaching in Mark's yeah. gospel comes after the revelation that Jesus is the crucified Messiah there. Uh, the whole incident where Jesus calls Peter Satan and then tells anyone who wants to come after me, take up your cross, follow me. And that becomes kind of that hinge point um, so then we, we've got the, the movement in the second half, which is about the way, the way to the cross. And then this is uh, apropos to the, the title of our um, uh, a title of my podcast. And part of the reason why I called it on the way um, and listeners to the first episode um, will already kind of be familiar with this, but others might want to go back and listen to that first episode. Um, the transition piece from ministry in Galilee to movement to Jerusalem to the cross takes place on the way in a way section where we have the two healings of blind men. One is a really strange two-part healing uh, where Jesus touches the man's eyes and asks him, do you see? He says, yes, I do see, but people look like trees. So this is kind of a picture of like Peter's sight when he says you're the Messiah. And then at the very end of the way section, we've got Bartimaeus, who is actually physically blind. Um, he does not, uh, but but he cries out, Jesus, you're the son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, he comes to Jesus and Jesus asks him the, that key question, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, Lord, or master, or actually I think it's teacher, rabbi, I want to see. Mm -hmm. And that's really what Mark is driving after in that way section is this greater insight of what it means to follow the crucified Messiah. So the way section is sort of like the bridge between yeah. Galilee and, and Jerusalem. So I kind of see a two-part structure, simply put, with the way section bridging it. Pretty generic, I think, standard for what many, many see. Um, yeah. yeah, be curious to hear what you think. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm going to go with your answer.
Yeah, I, uh, I, um, that makes really great sense. I just, I like to, uh, see sort of like movements. There's like chapters one to, th- well, chapter one is like the, it's like, um, it just seems like Mark is not interested. He's not interested in saying so much of like what Luke and Matthew have. Yeah. He's interested in like saying, telling the story in a particular way, including in there certain things. And chapter one just seems completely summative. Yeah. Like Jesus burst on the scene and like a thousand things happened. Yeah. They happened at a hundred miles an hour. Yeah. And like all these people got healed, all this stuff happened. Yeah. And he called I've disciples. Com- I've compared that to sort of like a montage in a movie set where you have a bunch of scenes sort, Absolutely. Of, sort of clipped together. But I do think the first 13 or 15 verses, those first 15 verses are yeah. like critical. That sort of oh, like totally. sets the stage for the whole gospel, right? Yep. Um, and then as you say, it just sort of picks up really fast, right? Disciples yeah. are being called. They're yeah. moving away instantly, <laughs> immediately, immediately, yeah. right? And then he did this. Yeah. And then he did this. Happened yeah. so fast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's just, it's like fast forward through basically everything. Mm-hmm. And then in 2-1, and three to three, six, you've got like the, yeah. the developing conflict. Yep. And so it's like so much of Mark is, is um, in the shadow of like threat. Yes. Um, three, six to, is the first place where you've got the plot to kill. Yeah. Jesus, Right. So you've got like this building drama of conflict with the uh, established authorities. Yeah. And that final one, it's kind of weird if you read it on your own. I even had students say he healed someone on the Sabbath. So they went out and plotted to kill him. And yeah. like, yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Does it? You yeah. kind of have to take it all together. Like, yeah, he is making this, these incredible claims as the son of man ushering in the new age yeah. and those who are attached to the old age, they don't want to let go. Yeah. So they go plot to kill him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, yeah. Mark has a way of kind of building that drama from two, one to three, six, where it's mm-hmm. like, uh, there's, there's something it's developing. Yes. You know? Um, and to me, it's like four, one to 20 is like, is, uh, it's so profoundly sets the stage for the rest of Mark. It's, mm-hmm. it's like where it's all about seeing and hearing and perceiving and understanding. Yes. Um, and, and I, I see, uh, I can't, I can't remember who said this, but four, one to 20 is almost like the table of contents for the rest of Mark. Yeah. Because what you're going to see from then on is four different soils. Yes. Um, that are responding to Jesus in different ways. And yeah. uh, they're going to struggle with, um, you know, the, the, the anxieties of this age. Mm-hmm. Um, the, well, you, you're going to see, as you read the rest of the gospel, you're going to see, uh, man, my brain is not functioning. I just had that huge fresh it's <laughs> weighing on me no but uh the the four soils are going to kind of pop up yeah the rest of and, and what's interesting is like the first three soils are almost entirely the disciples it's so nutso and then like yeah. and then all those kind of outsider characters and the rest of mark are uh the four are the fourth soil they're actually bearing fruit good soil yeah so then um yeah so f- chapter four is like the that tight concentration of all of the um this uh the parables mm-hmm. um yeah and i i i think that oh oh uh 4 11 to 12 or so up until what you just mentioned the halfway point um that's where all the sea crossings are everything happens around yeah. the sea and um in that section there's um the ignorance and well not ignorance the obtuseness yeah. of the disciples grows yes and um it kind of like culminates in uh also just to say 
what's interesting about Mark is that um, it starts the best things are going the best in chapter one. Yeah. In Mark, it's like, it starts and it's going awesome. Then Jesus calls disciples conflict develops. And then the disciples completely get more obtuse as it grows. Yes. It's like, it's completely backwards. It's not like, that's such a good point. Yeah. It's so nuts. That, which is, by the way, I was thinking about this uh, conversation on my walk this morning. It's like, yeah, what do I love about Mark? I just, I love that he just messes with convention and like, Eh, no, this is gonna be this is gonna be the complete uh, backwards gospel. I, I just love yeah. that. Yeah. Um. So in four to eight, there's so much kind of stage uh, setting, and there's so much that's happening around the sea. Yeah. Um. Jesus, like you know, mastering the sea and calming uh, the roiling storm and all that kind of stuff. And then that middle section from uh, from the end of eight up and through up and up until the end of ten. You know, the mm-hmm. the blind men. Mm-hmm. Um, is just it's so rich where Jesus three times predicts what's going to happen in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. and then each time the disciples, the obtuseness only grows, and mm-hmm. it's it's almost like they and I think they start. I don't think it's saying too much to say that they almost kind of start talking Jesus out of his mission. Yeah. Um, well, they like, they Peter tried to do it, and it seems yeah. like they're seems like their behavior they're just consistently resistant to yeah what Jesus is trying to do entirely Peter does it like you just said at the, at the beginning of chapter 9 when they go up on the mountain and Jesus you do get that kind of like um that outbreak of glory where he's transfigured yeah. or something like that and Peter says uh you know what he, sa- he says about the let's, let's build three shelters here or whatever um I think that's Peter saying okay this is the end like okay let's keep it here Let's, yeah, let's let's camp out here with the glory. Yeah. You keep going on about this crucified stuff. Like, no, we're we're not doing that. I didn't sign up for that. Yeah, like, that's great. Like, this is what I signed up for. I want more of this. Yeah, that's um, good. That's good. And uh, yeah, and the obtuseness only grows where the disciples are not doing what Jesus wanted them to do. You know, when when they come when they descend the mountain, um, and then I can't remember. Yeah, the the three times. When he predicts his death, the disciples of their—I mean—they're competing for prestige. Um, they're sort of um, betraying that there are ministry rivalries. Remember that when John yeah. asked him, "Yeah, he's like, hey, we heard some other guys casting out demons in your yeah. name. We told them to stop." Yeah, you know, it's like uh, that mega church across town is. What's growing. great about we, that? We scene wanted to too, shut that down. What's great about that one too is the reason they give for wanting to shut it down. Oh, yeah. They say they're not one of us. Yeah, they're not one of us. Not yeah. of our tribe. No, they're not in our tribe. You know, but yeah. they don't have the right doctrinal statement. Right, right. Yeah, and then the other one is so great because Jesus asks the sons of Zebedee, James and John, the same question that yeah. he asks Bartimaeus. Then in the next chapter, what do you want? For, what do you want me to do for you? Yeah, and they're like, oh, we yeah. want to be on your right and your left. You know, yeah. Who who could be more qualified than us to sit totally. in the best positions? And yeah, and Jesus is like, mm, I don't know about that. Uh, yeah, it's not how know, this goes. It's not how this goes. Um, yeah, totally. Uh, well, but but that's all. Like you were saying, it's like it's the cross as a way of life. Yes. And they are exactly embodying a way of life that's anti-cross. It's yes. like it's not about my laying down my life for the sake of others. It's about me getting all the goods. Yeah. It's about me getting to decide uh what are the limits of this community. I right. get to decide. We get to decide yeah. that they are not of us. Yeah. 
And it's that's why that's why Jesus calls Peter Satan, by the way. Yeah. That's what he identifies as the satanic mindset in totally. the gospel. Your minds are not set, you know, your mindset on the thing of human beings, not on the things of God. Yep. That's the satanic mindset. And the disciples are giving us pictures over and over and over again of what it looks to live satanically yeah. rather than in light of the the, the cross. Yeah. And that, and when you when you say that that sounds like striking it sounds shocking and offensive it sounds like um like satan like satanic cult stuff like uh let's slaughter an animal and have a séance or something like that but um i mean haven't we all at one point or no <laughs> well it is the weekend <laughs> but it's uh what's interesting is how mark defines like what is satanic or what what does it look like when Satan snatches away the word or one of the soils in chapter four? Yeah. What it looks like is somebody who signs up to discipleship to Jesus, but doesn't want the cross part. Yeah. That's you know, right. Like we don't, and that I'm not saying that in the sense of like, I, I heard that my whole life. We don't want to hear about the cross. Like we don't want to hear about sin and atonement and uh, all that kind of stuff. That's not what it is about. Yeah. The cross is all about a way of life that is about self-abnegation, self-giving love, inclusive community. What we don't we don't have the prerogative to define the limits of who is in and who's out. Right. Um, it's it's about service and servanthood. But you're yeah. right. That that's the satanic gospel, which is a Christian movement that 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 talks about going to the nation's capital to put other people on crosses mm-hmm. instead of to go to the nation's capital and to get on a cross. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, goodness, think of, yeah, the resonances um, with the January 6th insurrection to me are just so profound Hmm. um, because in so many ways that was a, that was a Christian act. I mean, that was in a, that was the kind of Christianity that we find in America among white people act, Mm -hmm. you know, all the Christian, you know, the people who stormed the Capitol went to the Senate. Uh, and prayed and there was you know people they brought crosses i mean it was very it shows how much of american christianity is satanic Mm. um because it wants to do violence and and grab for power and prestige and and say that we are the ones that get to determine the course of how things go yeah um instead of we're we're going uh to give up our lives and we're we we're going to embark on a way of life that is about giving up our lives. That's good. Um, yeah. And we'll come back to this in a minute once you get through the structure, but I think that's oh, an yeah. important, important point to come back to because what you have is, I think this is an important point in Mark, the soils, you never want to essentialize the soils, right? You can always become good soil. Uh, that's something even St. Augustine said. Um, mm, yeah. And, and so when we look at Peter, right, Jesus identifies his mindset as Satan. That doesn't mean Jesus is done with Peter, but that no. harsh that harsh word of rebuke is identifying the satanic mindset that the community is called to repent of. So when Jesus yeah. says, anybody who wants, you know, get behind me, Satan, that same word gets picked up, take up your cross, come behind me. So the idea is, Peter, you need to get behind me. That's the place of the disciple. Um, you're out of line. Yeah, And we just don't have a lot of good mechanisms in our, in many of our church networks, uh, denominations, maybe even or church communities. We just don't have a lot of good frameworks for corporate repentance oh, yeah, and, totally. and really rigorous uh, self-analysis. And what I mean by that is not just the individual. We do plenty right. of, uh, plenty individual self-flagellation yeah. goes on in our churches, yeah. but we, we don't do a lot of 
analysis of how are we behaving as a community yeah and in what ways is uh, what ways do we need to repent of communal practices that we've inherited over time and yeah uh some new ones maybe that we've created like that's an yeah, ongoing absolutely. process the, the reformers when they said always reforming they they meant it like you, yeah you've got to be consistently walking in repentance yeah no that's really a good point uh along that line and then i'll get back on track along that line um What's interesting to me is that the disciples' narrative trajectory throughout Mark is consist is consistently downward, mm-hmm. um, and they get to the end and they abandon Jesus. Mm-hmm. But um, what's interesting too is that Mark has got these beautiful notes of hope where, um, right before they abandon Jesus and he breaks the bread. Oh no, actually, right before the meal, um, when he tells the two disciples go into the city and prepare. Um, lodging and all that and and ask or tell them um you know uh, the teacher uh, or the lord i can't remember the title but he 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 where's the place for him to mm-hmm. eat the meal with his disciples mm-hmm. and like there's this constant ownership of the disciples all the way to the end where he's like he gives his body to all of them mm-hmm. um and then at the very end when the young man uh, encounters the women he says, go and tell his disciples and Peter. So you're right about the essentialism dynamic. It's like, there's none of that there. There's mm-hmm. always, and I mean, that's what Mark's all about. Mark is a prophetic telling of the gospel to generate repentance uh, right. on the part of the church. We are supposed I, to I, identify I, ourselves with the disciples, yeah. turn and repent and and imitate Jesus. Like that yeah. dynamic is just constantly going on. In yeah. The- like in what ways uh, do the anxieties of this age uh, hold us in in their grip. In what ways um, are we resistant to the dynamics of the cross? But these are all Mark asks just so many questions. Yeah. yeah. But then uh, when at the arrival into Jerusalem in chapter eleven, uh, I mean Jesus is just drawing on so much of the of the prophets in critiquing the temple system and what the temple has become mm-hmm. in chapters eleven and twelve when he has controversies with mm-hmm. uh, the Sadducees and. Um, and basically giving like a master class on um, how how Jesus is building a people and is angry that um, his people are not a people of social justice. Yeah, you know of, of God's the people that embody the realities and ongoing dynamics of God's uh, vision for a culture of justice of His justice. And of course, that um, you know go to the heart of power. And you know, poke people in the eye in the form of um, you know confronting them, and uh, it's gonna you're gonna pay. The and story, the, the story of the prophets don't end well typically. Totally, right? yeah, 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 always. Yeah. Um, shoot, I just had a thought and it escaped me. It the story of my life. Um, oh, and, and Jesus, uh, Jesus shuts the temple down. Mm. Uh, which is really interesting. Um, he he doesn't cleanse the temple. Yeah. You know, he 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 stops he stops the commerce. I, it, there had to be commerce going on in the temple mount. I mean, that that in the temple system, that was part of it. You had to buy, sacrifice, all that kind of stuff. Um, but because of sort of the exploitative dynamic of, it's not that the temple system had become like 
economized. It's that the economy was exploitative. Yeah, it's a critique of the ruling powers that are yes. currently controlling a system that God yeah. designed for good purposes. Right. It's the it's it's the thieves mm -hmm. in the den of thieves. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not like the den or it's not like the, right. the system itself. Right. And so Jesus just stops it. He shuts it down. And I think it was Timothy Gray who talks about how that portion is Jesus uh, shutting down the temple. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of Mark is, um, you know, Jesus, the temple being killed. Mm. It's just that the one, you know, Jesus, the temple is going to be raised from the dead. And then you have, you know, the account of his uh, uh, crucifixion. I mean, th there's it's so brilliantly uh the narrative dynamics going on in those scenes and especially the scenes of jesus on trial and then peter on trial oh yeah it's so fascinating it's yeah. utterly interesting yeah um and then all all the characters that the characters that mark just kind of throw like joseph of arimathea you know all these characters just gonna be go brabus here's another yeah. character yeah. And it, it's all telling the story they, they it all relates yeah to what's what's uh what's happening and then at the very end, uh, the ending of Mark is um, is just so absolutely provocative and fa fascinating, where it just ends sort of like with disappointment and mm -hmm. with a complete lack of resolution, mm -hmm. which uh, um, I think I would love to hear your take on it, Max. But I, to me, it's it's wonderful how it ends because it's so unsatisfying in the moment. Yeah but so profoundly satisfying in that it drives you back to the beginning. It drives you yes. back through Mark. Yeah. Like, what, how could, how did it end this way? Let's yeah. go back to the beginning. And like, yeah. and then what's interesting is how Mark subtly has a bunch of narrative threads that he develops ever so subtly that on a first encounter, first couple encounters, you wouldn't catch them. Mm -hmm. But then as you go back through and you find out like, uh, like just for example, mm. how it is that, the crowds are a character in Mark, but they, there's so little that's said about them at the beginning. They're, they're, they're growing and they're, mm -hmm. you know, there's a bigger crowd and a huge crowd. And then the one that's like piling on Jesus and he's, yeah. you know, he's like shaking them off. They're just they're all over him and the crowd, the crowd. And then later in like chapter five, where he wants to go see Jairus's daughter, but he can't because of the crowd, like the crowds mm -hmm. are, are an obstacle mm -hmm. to Jesus doing his work. And then you find mm -hmm. out at the very end, the crowds can be manipulated mm -hmm. and they call for Barabbas. And it's like, mm -hmm. whoa. Yeah. You know, as an American evangelical raised on like the the more fans in the seats, the better your team. Ooh. You know, the the more people in your church, the better your church. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, the more popular you are, the more you are validated. It's like I would have always seen the crowds, the growing crowds as a sign of how great things were going. Right. Um but it's like Jesus when Jesus goes to the cross and he it's the culmination it, it's the climactic work that is the turning of the ages he dies alone yeah and so it's like the crowds i think really become a symbol of the failure to understand and and kind of like the crowds are almost a symbol of what happens when satan snatches away the word when they when they hear about something awesome going on but they don't want the cross part mm. so it's it's it just so I think the ending is fascinating and provocative of audiences to go back and, and go back through and look for clues. How could it have gone mm -hmm. differently? What were the mistakes that the mm -hmm. disciples made? What did they miss? And what, what mm -hmm. do we miss mm -hmm. uh, when we don't uh, attend carefully to things? Yeah. But so I, I think the, that was, I'm not saying, I'm not entertaining any notion of verses nine and following being 
original but do, i mean do you think that that is the original ending or do you think there was like a longer ending i know or like, it's what do you so think? um there's so many facets to this this whole thing right so just real quickly for our listeners and uh viewers um and this might not be apparent to you depending on the bible translation you're you're reading but if you have a modern bible translation you probably have verses 9 through 20 in brackets um and the reason for that is our earliest manuscripts stop at verse eight with um, they fled the tomb uh, because they were afraid. End of story. Um, so it kind of that's what Tim means. It's kind of like it ends sort of uh, anticlimactically. So, you know, there's various theories. Did we lose the original ending to the gospel? Um, was Mark sort of a text in process, never quite finished, that became the source for Matthew and Luke? I tend to think that there is good reason for thinking it ended at verse eight. Um, it's a very odd and shocking ending, but there are other ancient texts that end in odd and shocking ways as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I kind of trying to kind of lean in that direction. Um, and I, I do think at a literary level, at the very least, it's highly satisfying to see the end of Mark um, in this open-ended way. So it, it kind of ca calls for participation and reflection you do yeah. kind of end in shock and then you got to ask yourself, oh my, the tomb is empty. Maybe I haven't seen the risen Christ yet, but if he is indeed raised and the tomb is empty, then maybe I should fear, be, tremble a little bit in awe and fear of what, what are the implications of that? And now I got to think about all of life in light of Jesus. Uh, and then I do, I go back to the beginning of the story and I start reading it again. I think Mark is designed for constant recitation in a church context where you're yeah. going through the story over and over again and seeing how it yeah. all connects together, you know, and then you're reading Jesus's baptism, no longer just as his baptism, but as your baptism, mm. you're baptized, you're called son of daughter, you're cast out into the wilderness to be tried. And, and, and you begin this journey of faith with Jesus. Um, so yeah, I think it's, I think it, it's designed to kind of lead to that sort of reflection, yeah. um, to, even to get us to think like, okay, the women fled the tomb in fear. That can't be where the story ends, though, because yeah. we, ha we have the gospel. So, and we and we are a church here listening we're, to it. We're here listening to it. So, at some point, they must have you know overcome their fear, been empowered by the Spirit to preach the gospel, and now yeah. we're we're in that line kind yeah. of to continue on. Yeah. So, yeah, it kind of I think much in the way that Acts ends. Um, yeah. Although yeah. Acts, I mean, grammatically, Acts ends more elegantly than Mark, but yeah. much in the same way, I think it's inviting us into an open-ended story. The story yeah. is not finished; it's you, you're continuing on. Yeah. You see, you see, Jesus is the first preacher of the gospel. He, he those are his first words. Uh, he's preaching the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now you go preach what Jesus preached. Yeah. You embody that message, right? So yeah. I plus, because that it's like, a, um, when he. Oh, the, the message that the young man wants the women to tell the disciples, his disciples and Peter, is he's going to meet you back in Galilee. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like, all right, what if we went back up north and started over? Like, how would it go? Yeah, that's you right. know what I mean? Kind of like a reset. Reset. Yes. Right. Right. And we so get that. Is... We get that meeting in the Gospel of Matthew, you know, so in our canonical yeah. frame. We get that yeah. meeting, but yeah, Mark kind of invites us, like, go, go reset, yeah, start over. Yeah. How would this? How should it go? Yeah. Also, I uh, I think that Mark, I mean, it's it's weird saying this in light of your opening note that Mark is the most neglected of the four in the history of the church. Although that maybe that says more about the church. Well, it says a lot about the church, but 
um, it's Matthew, that jerk. He had to write a longer <laughs> gospel, more elegant, <laughs> more elegantly put together. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh, I think Mar I think the ending is first of all, it's very punk rock. It's mm. it's like the it's like the ultimate mic drop of a you know gospel writer. Or it's just like here's your guy here, here's your gospel. <laughs> here's your gospel. You want one of these? <laughs> um, but it's great. just so punk rock. It, it's so in your it's it's just so upsetting to kind of all the expectations. Yeah. But it's also genius in that it's gonna make it's gonna um what's the uh is it Dodds that said that parables are um they tease the mind into active thought mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so it's like it's so provocative of reflection and investigation it makes you curious mm -hmm. like I, I remember one of my favorite films are like coen brothers films and um the one that i've i've watched uh so often i just watched it this last week is uh no country for old men yeah and uh with a I'll never forget the first time that I watched it in a, a theater with a bunch of my friends and I was sitting next to my friend, Bob, and he had already read the novel and uh, he, the ending is very awkward. It, it's, it's so odd mm. and um, something totally unexpected and random happens right before the penultimate scene or in the penultimate scene. And then in the final scene, um, there's like a, this uh one of the main characters tells his wife uh what dreams he had the night before and then the movie just ends and i remember turning to bob and being like what was that and he goes think about it and i i honestly i couldn't stop thinking about it i went i watched it again i picked up the novel and read the novel and i i went back through to just try to figure out like what is going on and how yeah. do these how, how is that yeah. ending coherent and the coherence is genius um but then even if you look online and look up you know ending of no country for old men there are loads of discussions about right. it right it opens up the it, yeah it opens, it opens up discussions up, yeah. and it provokes curiosity yeah. so I, I think it's absolutely genius yeah that's awesome i love that well i think we've already given our listeners about 20 things if not more that we love about mark but let's just formally state why we love mark in certain ways i i'll let you go first um i'm sure you've got a bunch but like what's a reason why you really love this gospel yeah well it's the shortest so uh for people that are just have no attention span it would low be, attention it would... span gospel yeah <laughs> it's a, a low low energy gospel no, <laughs> high energy gospel actually <laughs> yeah it is um yeah, I think it's the punk rock gospel. I think it's the most, <clears throat> it's the most prophetic. It's kind of the most, most in your face prophetic, you know. Yeah, yeah. And <clears throat> I love that. Um, I. <clears throat> sorry, you've I you've think... been known to get in people's faces from time to time. Yeah, I get. You know, I I sort of fully inhabit my Greekness every once in a while. There you go. I'm highly pugilistic. I uh, I I like it. Um, I think because of its timeliness for this moment today of where we are, I'm saying we, uh, where, um, well, America has been here for a long time, uh, how America identifies, well, I guess I would, to back up, I would say it this way. I've struggled with this for a long time. And I know you have too. We've talked about this a lot, mm. uh, but just becoming more and more aware of the deep, um, rhythms and impulses, uh, of justice that run through scripture uh, 
and the, and the reality that that's what it's all about. It's yeah. it's uh, the instantiation or God's intended instantiation of God of His justice in the world among His people. Mm. Um, that coming to understand more and more those deep impulses and God's deep desires, mm. and then also becoming more and more aware of American history and its ugliness and its injustice and the fact that it is it has such a long-standing history of injustice by professed Christians. Mm. It's like that. And then also picking up on something you said earlier, Max, about I think this is one of the things that has been therapeutic for me or has been helpful in not dismantling my faith, growing in awareness of all this did not lead me like to chuck it. Yeah. Um, it what it did is it made me uh, get my nose in the text harder. Mm. And then it, it was so satisfying to find that this is what God has been saying to his people all along. And then it's not like, um, yeah, the church is, has all these injustices and we have this nice um, book of very nice devotions and, and uh, it doesn't address that at all. It's like, no, this is part of the heart of God. And he's, yeah. he's shouting. Yeah. And Mark is Mark has jumped up on the table and has just knocked everything off and is kicking over chairs. And it's like, you know, cause Jesus is Elijah. Right. I mean, everybody, everybody looks at how Jesus is behaving. He's like, Oh, that's, that's John. Well, or it's Elijah or, I mean, it's, it's like, he's such a, I mean, Jesus is kind of like a punk rock Messiah in, um, in the gospel of Mark. So I, I love that. It's, it's helped me to sort of wrestle with this current moment uh, that we're in and the moment that, the American church has been in for 404 years and, and, mm. and that the, you know, going back into Europe, the church has been here a long time, Yeah, but it's, it's, it's just the moment that I'm in. Yeah. It's been, it's been really satisfying to me in the same measure at it has just scared the hell out of me. Yeah. Um, because I, you know, as an affluent white man with, with all, all the privileges and head starts anybody could imagine, it's like, I'm in it. So in that sense, it has also deeply unsettled me, but, but, but that's also exciting. Cause it's like, yeah, oh, I was going right. to say when you, I've when you imagine some new, when you get Mark's trajectory, being unsettled doesn't become a threatening thing anymore. Yeah. It, it becomes this wonderful opportunity for repentance and growth. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the things like I remember when I was working on the commentary and I, uh, I mean, there was, no, there was, this happened a number of times I was sitting at my desk and, and just, pondering that statement about you know jesus is like do you see how impossible it is for the wealthy to be saved mm. and i'm like yeah it's bill gates has got it tough you know i'm like or like you know warren buffett mm -hmm. and i was like huh I, and i looked up uh where my my income and where my wealth had me mm. uh, i don't think of myself as a wealthy person or i didn't back then now i realize i'm obscenely wealthy Mm. Um, looked at looked at where I stood worldwide and then nationwide and statewide and countywide. Mm. And I was like, I started to read that verse as, do you see Jesus talking? Do you see how impossible it is for Tim Gombas to be saved? Mm. And just started to shudder. Um, but what that one of the things that that did for me is um it just awakened some some new conversations and for me to be mm. sort of attentive. And um, it was it was during the writing of that commentary, uh, Jonathan and I had a conversation. Our good friend Jonathan Greer, mm. he he had just been to the county jail. <laughs> he had just been to the county jail to do um, 
to do a, a like a two hour presentation um, on some you know tools for biblical interpretation or whatever through the um, through the chaplain's office. Hmm. And because one of the the chap the chaplain at the jail was in our uh, was a student at the seminary at the time, oh. and I. I got home and this was like, while I was working on the commentary, I, I had to drop him off mm-hmm. and dropped him off at home. I got home and I texted him right away. I said, do you have Jason's number? And I texted Jason right away. Like before I had time to think about it and be like, mm-hmm. and dismiss the idea, I texted mm-hmm. Jason and said, we got to have lunch. Um, I want to, I want to get involved in the county jail because like the, I need to, uh, and I started up until COVID started um, was in there every Friday uh, volunteer teaching and uh, you know random we went through philippians but we were just taking two hours every friday just talking about the bible mm-hmm. and i was terrified it was it was it was i had never sweated so much <laughs> i was terrified but it was like it was a thrill and i mm-hmm. don't think i ever would have done that unless i had seen unless i'd been so struck by mark and the necessity of actually um my, like seeing so plainly and clearly the stark um, choice of like the impossibility of being a follower of Jesus uh, headed for glory after the side of suffering. Mm-hmm. And um, the fact that there are ways I can do this, I can lean into this reality. Mm-hmm. So, it, so it, 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 it was overwhelming when I studied Mark, but it was also thrilling because it added some new dimensions to my life. And um, mm. yeah, I still, I can't, I can't hear anything about or or even consider um, options in my life without sort of having those mark-shaped lenses hmm. or those mark-shaped earphones or whatever that just make me ask a different set of questions. Hmm. I, I Also, I have to say I love Mark because of its literary quality. Hmm. Um, I know that the other Gospels are um, literary, literarily beautiful, but there's something about how Mark... Um, just these beautiful devices and the subtleties, like mm-hmm. on one hand, it's like, um, like when I first discovered that the two healings of blind men, that there's something really significant about that and about how it brackets a section. It was like, Oh, mm-hmm. that's, Oh my God. That's incredible. <laughs> that's so cool. But then it's like, Oh, that's so on the nose. Mm-hmm. Oh, Mark. Yeah. Okay. He's literally uh, mm-hmm. astute, but it's like, you know, but then to see like the the levels of subtlety, like you sort of never mm-hmm. get to the bottom of those. Mm-hmm. So that's just literarily beautiful. Yeah, and I think um, yeah, it's I good. It's it. a good story. It's a well told. It's really well. Oh, told. totally, yeah. and it's tight. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like um, to, to stay with punk. It's kind of like um, like early police, where just really tight music. Um, uh, there was no. There's like three uh, instruments: a bass guitar drums and just it's super tight mm. they got kind of like airy later yeah on synchronicity which is also a great album um but so i, I just got back from arizona I, I road tripped out to arizona to see my daughter and i was listening to just so much different music and i listened to like a bunch of consecutive u2 albums and uh this one album is um no line on the horizon which is is big big sounds stadium rock and um big themes uh, abstracted in, in a sense and then their next album is called um songs of innocence and where they go back and they, they tell the story of their childhoods in many ways and in the sonics are super tight the lyrics are mm. super concrete it's not big and airy it's not it's not sort of stadium rock it's like cl- it's like punk rock in that sense and so I, I think mark is like that it's tight 
mm-hmm. um, which, and I think, you know, Matthew's airy and, and large and like big and, and symphonic and gorgeous and beautiful with rich tapestries. But Mark is just like, I mean, it's Johnny Rotten. I mean, he's just, you're, you're in a club and you expect a nice performance and he just comes out with a guitar and just, <laughs> it's just, that's what I love about it. But yeah. I'll say the final thing I love about Mark is, um, uh, is really the fact that the disciples are in such bad shape. They're such failures and that Jesus owns them. And that, to me, that's beautiful. Yeah. That um, there's not this abandonment and mm-hmm. he doesn't say, all right, uh, I'm going <laughs> to, well, I'm starting over with a new set of disciples, with, with the actual yeah. disciples, not you clowns. Yeah. Um, and it, to me, that's beautiful, especially because um, it's not that they failed and failed and failed. It's that they failed and failed and failed and abandoned mm. Jesus. And it's like, um, and denied him mm-hmm. and denied themselves. I mean, it was, the, the failure is profound and absolute. Yeah. And, but in the same way, Jesus's claim of them and his and then the beauty, the beauty of the supper where he says, this is my body. Mm. This is my blood. It's like he gives his very self to them, his yeah. body. It's it's like, mm-hmm. it's so, you know, it's striking in its intimacy and its, mm. its actuality. Mm. Um, but it's just meant to really portray the love of God in a beautiful way. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. yeah, it's really There's good to love about it. Yeah. I like what you said there at the end, kind of reminded me what Elizabeth Struthers Malbin says about the disciples. She's a really famous Markin scholar, probably like the leader in terms of reading Mark as, as a narrative in some ways. Um, she says the disciples are fallible followers in Mark. And that that kind of becomes a picture for, yeah. you know, we're we are kind of all broken and yet Jesus still claims us and he brings us along. The question isn't, have you messed up? It's, do you want to, yeah. do you want to see, do you want to repent? Do you want to continue yeah. on this journey with me? Yeah. Um, which I just, I find that really beautiful and encouraging. And Mark's gospel does haunt me in, in, the, in the same way it haunts you. Um, it, it It is haunting, but at the same time, when you get who Jesus is, rather than being kind of fear struck in, uh, fear stricken and maybe, oh no, you know, what, what's happening to my salvation? Like, that's not really the, it, it's more so like, here's the opportunity to grow. Jesus, the spirit showing you something new here, come, come on this journey. And uh, so I find it really invigorating when, oh, yeah. when I, when I really understand fully, I think what, what's going on with the, the disciples mm-hmm. and yeah, Mark didn't write this to you know, put Peter on blast or like make them no. look like, like doofuses. Um, yeah. He's helping us pastorally think about the life of faith, our struggles and what it looks like to, to follow Jesus. Yeah. Um, yeah. Plus I, along that line, and this may be overreaching, so it's not why I, I would just be very hesitant, but it's like, it's just inviting to reflect on this. I don't think Mark is putting Peter on blast and he's not taking it out on the disciples I wonder if, I mean, you you could draw this connection canonically. You could, maybe it's going too far, but just thinking about if Mark is the Mark of Acts and if he's the Mark you find in, you know, oh, pockets yeah. of Paul's letters and Peter, yeah. it's like, uh, he was a, fa- I mean, he has a biography and it's he like, left Paul in, yeah. in the middle of the, that missionary journey. Yep. And became, a yeah. ma- he became the reason Paul and Barnabas split. You know, if that is, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's like, it's easy to sort of develop a, a, like a biography and say something like, 
uh, Mark had to sort of arrive at some kind of personal way of narrating his own failure hmm. and hit, you know, God's holding on to him and, 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 and Paul's commitment to him because after that breakup, like later in Paul's ministry career, he, you know, tells timothy to bring mark with you right um and and mark is with paul when he writes philemon so again like i said i mean canonically you could maybe put these things together some some critical scholars might come you know come at us (laughs) over this and rightly so that's why i wouldn't want to foreground that but But it's like you know i've asked myself that is there some way in which mark Hmm. uh there's a little bit of biography in there and, and and i think that would at least provide a different frame for looking at how hard he, you know, how hard he is on the disciples. Mm-hmm. And, and does he want to include himself in that? Like, this is yeah. us. This, it's yeah. not like this is them. It's yeah. like, this is us. We're like yeah. this. We do this. Yeah, no, that's really good. I like that a lot. Um, uh, it preaches anyway. You it can, pre- you know. Yeah, no, it preaches really good. Another um, facet of Mark that I just, I love. And when I saw this, um, I just, I mean, I can't stop talking about it. Every time I talk about Mark, I have to talk about this. I can't teach Mark without making this kind of central to the, the class. Every time I've taught a, a graduate level course at seminary, one of the major assignments, if not the major assignment, is reflecting on this idea. And that's, uh, you mentioned other characters in Mark's gospel. Sometimes they're called minor characters. Um, yeah. These are, these are people that show up in the gospel. Typically, they're not named. Even, even in some cases, I think we know their name in the tradition from other stories, but they they typically don't get a name. Um, Bartimaeus would be one main exception to that. But these are figures who come from marginalized positions in society in various ways. And what I find so haunting about it is an intriguing haunting because like you, we inhabit very similar social positions they seem to be the only ones who really get Jesus yeah. in the narrative. The people that are close in terms of proximity and privilege and power are constantly misunderstanding Jesus. And those on the margins are the ones that Mark constantly is pointing. Like outside of pointing to Jesus as imitate Jesus, we get all these little pictures of these characters yeah. that pop up where Mark says, yeah, imitate yeah. her as well. A lot of them yeah. are women. A lot of them are women. Yeah, that's imitate right. her, imitate her, Syrophoenician imitate, woman. imitate him, the woman yeah. with the flow of blood. Yeah. The Syrophoenician yeah. The woman, woman in chapter 14 who you know, breaks the, the jar. Right. Probably her name was Mary, but Mark doesn't even, we don't yeah. have her name there. She's like the ultimate disciple in Mark in many ways. The gospel, she'll always, whenever the gospel is yeah. told, she, what she did will be, that's will a be crazy impressive. commendation. Yeah. Yeah, I you don't see anything else like that in the tradition no, that compares it's to that. Nuts. Yeah, the the widow at the temple. Um, yeah, I mean the list just goes on and on and on. You even have cool stuff where you could argue there's kind of two minor characters together, uh, where you've got the daughter of Jairus, whom Jesus mm-hmm. raises from the dead, and the woman yeah. with the flow of blood. Yes, absolutely. But it's it's kind of about Jairus too because he's this powerful official. And he's got to wait for his request to be met until Jesus meets with this woman yeah. with the flow of blood. Like yeah. that story actually interrupts. The technical yeah, term is inter- right. intercalation, or if yeah. you like sandwiching, Mark yeah. likes to make sandwiches. Yeah. And this is one, I think, where it's just really powerful Reflect on, reflecting on, man, Jesus made the guy that every, if you asked 100 out of 100 people who matters in the world, they all would have said Jairus. Oh, totally. Yeah. Not, th- not this woman. Yeah. And Jesus makes Jairus wait. Yeah. 
to have his request met until he meets with this woman. Yeah. He was healed. He could have kept going. No problem. Yeah. But he felt power go out of him. Like in the same way that she was had something coming out of her blood, yeah. right? Power comes out of Jesus, yeah. totally transforms the situation. And now you have this moment where she's brought front and center. It's not like, yeah. it's not like, hey, I mean, sometimes when we look at ministry, it's like expediency, you know, get from one task to the yeah. next, or what's most important, who's most important to be with, right? If I could have a gospel card with the the gospel, you suck, God, you're, you're destined yeah. to hell. But if you pray this prayer, you can go to heaven. And I yeah. just hand that out to 100 people. Wouldn't that be more efficient than stopping and meeting with this one homeless man who actually yeah. might want to talk to me and really could use a friend at this moment, right? Wouldn't that be more expedient? I don't know. Not for Jesus's perspective, yeah, right? Totally. It would have been more expedient to just keep walking on. But he he stops and makes it all about her. Yeah. And and so the way that Jesus responds to the minor characters, the faith they demonstrate, yeah, the Syrophoenician woman, she's the only character in the narrative who gets Jesus to change his mind. Yeah, right? I mean, go put that in your pipe and smoke it, I right? Know. A character in the Gospel yeah. of Mark actually moves Jesus to change his mind. Yeah, on something to see oh, that wow. that in that moment, right, his vision for. The kingdom of God, very natural, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. My ministry is primarily focused on the Jews, but it will go indeed go to the Gentiles. But she's she's in that moment. She's like, yeah, but the God of Israel is the God of all the nations. Yeah. And I'm here right now in front yeah. of you. So what are yeah. you going to do for me now? Yeah. Right? Like the persistent widow, like yeah. like some of the, the prophets and, and patriarchs who challenge God, like, yes, hey, remember your character here. Remember yeah. who you are. And God says, actually, OK, you're, you're right. <laughs> yeah. And, Jesus and unlike here, the disciples who like sometimes were afraid to ask about stuff. Right. And, and this woman, in fact, she'll take the lowest position, um, yeah. but insist that Jesus stay true to his identity as the, the Messiah, the God of Israel. So, yeah, you just have act after act of these incredible characters that come forward. And I am haunted by this dynamic that the people that seem to have the best perspective of life, of who Jesus is, of the moment, are those that are not centered in the community. Yeah. They're those coming yeah. from the margins. Yep. So that's the haunting part. The exciting part becomes, how do we actually actualize that in our yeah. communities? So how, yes. do you, how do we actually center people who have traditionally been marginalized, how do we make the voices of those who've been marginalized yeah. the centerpiece of our theological discourse? Because that yeah. there's a lot to be learned there. Um, yes. I know people get freaked out by you know, positional epistemology and there's a, you know all this kind of stuff, but that the reality is our yeah. life experiences do shape how we oh, see. Yeah. We oh, are totally. embodied human beings. Yeah. And what we've experienced does shape how we see the world. We need, yeah. and, and therefore we need one another to see the world more fully. And we especially need those on the margins to see how, oh, yeah. to see how the systems we inhabit actually yeah. work. Yeah. Right. So that for me is uh, one of the reasons that I really, really, really appreciate yeah. the gospel of Marx. These minor, the minor characters just throughout the gospel, what you have going on. There. Yeah. You know, it's interesting about that. I'm just thinking about that. Now you're talking about it, um, about how, um, spatially how like how i'm thinking about what you're saying spatially like you know we need people on the margins to show us we we need people on the margins and th that i totally agree with what you're saying especially when it comes to theological discourse and the current stakeholders and the people that 
you know, matter or whatever. But even the assumption of that stuff. is assuming the people that are at the center actually yeah. are. I get are, what you're saying. Yeah, and it's I like, totally get what you're saying. Yeah. Mark, Mark wants to even explode that, right? Yes. So the really the center of where God is active in the gospel. He's on the margins. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, 100%. 100%. Thanks. Yeah, that's, that, a good, that's a good clarity. That was interesting to me when he, um, when he says, it, he does it twice. He, he says um, in Mark 9, um, whenever you welcome, Mark, whenever he slows down the narrative, like when Jesus turns, looks around, it's like whenever he slows down his frantic pace, you know that something significant is going to happen. When he 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 takes the child, sets him in the center, mm-hmm. and puts his arms around him, mm-hmm. and he identifies with the social nobody. So, mm-hmm. and then he says, "As whenever you welcome one of mm-hmm. you know this person." Mm-hmm. I think in like an American evangelical perspective on that would be something like whenever you welcome one of these, you are showing my love to them. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Because the assumption mm-hmm. is like, we have God's love and we just need to yes. share it. Yes. But he's like, whenever you welcome one of these, you're welcoming me. Like I don't walk in the room. I don't walk in right. the big shiny building until one of these walks in. Yeah. You know, and then he yeah, also, that's so good. Yeah. You know that's what I'm so saying? Good. Yeah. And so what that, what that means is that, our, the model of hospitality in a lot of our churches is we've got the goods come yeah. in, come in and, and have a taste. Like, yes, we've got it. We've got, we've what got you, Jesus. We've we got what you need. Him. We've got what you need. Come in and yeah. Yeah. Ooh, we're Jesus dispensers or something. You get some Jesus and you get some Jesus. Right. And, and when <laughs> totally. Mark, what Mark is kind of saying is actually Jesus is out there. He's out there. You, if you what want are to meet, doing in there, if you want to meet with Jesus, you go out. Yes. Yeah, that's good. So I just think about all of our language, Max. It's like outreach. Yeah. Like we have God, and we're gonna bring a little bit of Him to you over there. And then also, I've thought about like the cultural metaphor. cultural influence. Yeah. Oh, Yo, totally. This is a this is a, another one. I, I've back to your punk rock point oh. about Jesus. I, I could see Mark being like, "You want some cultural influence? I'll, I'll give you some cultural influence." <laughs> How about the Messiah that goes and dies on the cross, crying out, oh, my God, totally, my God, man. why have you forsaken me? Oh, my word. Yeah, <laughs> it's so upside down. But thinking about, like, you know, with Paul's metaphor of the, bo- of the body and the body parts, um, like that metaphor is only used by Paul ever to talk about how every part is important. Yeah. Like, he doesn't use that metaphor to talk about how, like, we need to be the hands and feet of Jesus. That's the cor- that's a corruption. That's a corrupted use of that metaphor. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, because when when the New Testament mind is talking about you know, reaching out to others, it's talking about that's where we find God. That's where we find Jesus. Mm-hmm. And even the, the the time when John says we told them to stop, Jesus says, uh, "Well, don't do that because anytime they show you hospitality, they get their reward." Mm-hmm. He doesn't say anytime you reach out to them, I'm mm-hmm. glad that you do. It's like. Yeah, you are the needy ones here. And when they, you know, uh, when they share with you, they will get their reward. Yeah. He's like, it's again, it's all these subtle, like subversions of of assumptions. Yes. That are just so striking. Yeah. Interestingly. That's really good. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's so central to, to Mark. And it also ties in with the, maybe we can end with this, see where it goes. But the thing I really appreciate appreciate about Mark's gospel. And I think all of this kind of fits into this overarching theme that identifying Jesus as the crucified Messiah isn't a signing off on a doctrinal statement. It's not, it's not a set of theological propositions about God. 
um, you know, it's, it's really easy actually to pray a prayer and say, yeah, I really suck. I deserve to go to the bad place. I'd like to go to the good place, please. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Uh, and, until you realize that the the good place is the bad place. If any of you have seen that show, yeah, totally. <laughs> that, I love that show. Oh, it's so uh, brilliant! It's so good. Another subversion. Another subversion. Right, right, right. Um, oh gosh, when Maya Rudolph was the judge, that was just that was just took it to a new level. Um, there are so many so many facets to that show. Yeah, but anyway, um, <laughs> I, I love it. I loved. I loved, yeah, totally. I loved it. I loved that that guy uh, was a Jaguars fan and he was obsessed with Blake Bortles. Like it was just like there was just so much that was good about that show. Talk about um, minor characters. I talk about minor characters. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, awesome. it's it's um, I mean, Mark is trying to say like when you put your lives in the, you're, you put your life in the hand of, of the life giver, right? So you're yeah. not losing your life. You're gaining yeah. true life, but this is going to be a complete new way of seeing the world. This is going to be walking into a new creational way of living. That's going to bring extreme hostility um, from the current system of the yeah. world. I mean, that's why Jesus goes to the cross, <clears throat> Yeah. but this is going to be a whole new way of, of seeing the world so that, yeah. The central, it might get you killed. And it might get you killed. Like the center revelation of the story, Jesus is the crucified Messiah. And Mark's not giving that to us as a piece of information. He's saying, Jesus is the crucified Messiah. Yeah. Go think about what that yeah. means. Go think yeah. about what that means. Meditate yeah. on what that means. Got very Pauline in a way. Um, oh, yeah. And um, Paul's very Markin. Yeah, I mean, we. I think we both agree on that. Although some of our colleagues would disagree, but I think they. I think they. They very much overlap in many. Oh ways. yeah! Oh yeah! Um, and, and so, you know, just to see the way that he presents. Presents that throughout the the story, all the various implications, um, even the way he presents Jesus's death. I mean, oh, I don't. Yeah. If you're writing a a story to make somebody look good, he doesn't, you know, he kind of subverts that. Like, oh yeah, Jesus doesn't look good by oh, ancient, yeah. by ancient standards, you know, in the yeah. way he dies, and yeah. yet you've got this interwoven tapestry where what's happening to Jesus is in conversation with Psalm 22, the righteous suffering King. Um, Jesus's final words are the opening words of Psalm 22. So you also have the struggle that Jesus himself goes through to live out the message that he's preaching, right? Yeah. The way of the cross is the struggle of what the way of the cross is, yeah. is lived out in Jesus's own life. Uh, the garden of Gethsemane, you know, praying father, take oh, this yeah. cup from me. Um, but not my will, your will be done. Well, the only other time that shows up in the narrative is when Jesus is talking about what it means to be his people, his family, Whoever yeah. does the will of God is my mother, my yeah. brother, my sister. So yeah. that's our like that's our family identity. We are those who do the will of God, inhabit the way of the cross. And Mark doesn't hold back from that. The implications oh, no. of that, the struggle of Jesus, the, the struggle in the way that Jesus goes, the way that he cries out. And so I see also with Jesus's struggle, a pattern for how we can be faithful disciples and um, and I see God's very self-identification with us mm -hmm. in co-suffering and in in struggling in evil, right? Like Jesus's cry from the cross for me is God's identification with everybody who's ever been mistreated, suffered injustice, oh, yeah. who's who's had evil and chaos 
you know, um, imposed upon them in various ways. Jesus takes that on in the cross. So the facets of identifying Jesus as the crucified Messiah, that's for me, that's another really exciting part of Mark's gospel. And I I think you can get that in various ways from other gospels, but I don't think you quite get it. No, it's not so in your face. The volume isn't turned up as much as it is in Mark in this way. And I just think we we need that as oh yeah. I mean that not only does it preach well, it's just part of the part of daily life being a being a Christian. Being a Christian. Yeah. Absolutely, man. Yeah. Well, I, I think we, we, we definitely have covered a lot uh, today, and um, I, I'd love to have you back on at some point too, Tim, just to chat about other stuff. Yeah, it's so fun, it's, man. It's really fun. Dude, Thanks. I always love seeing you. We always love uh, yeah. conversations, always just go on forever, and I, yeah. I, I just think you're so fascinating, fun, and you're just a blast. This is great. Thanks, Thanks for uh, yeah. wanting to talk with me, and, and, and Mark is just awesome. So Yeah, well, and for our, our uh, listeners, um, I did forget to mention at the beginning of the podcast, Tim has a really excellent podcast called Faith Improvised, um, which I've been enjoying listening to for a couple years now. Um, it's just really good stuff. I, I appreciate Tim for so many things, but one of the things I most appreciate is just his honesty and authenticity. So it really, he really invites you in to think about the the journey of faith. So I'd, I'd highly recommend that podcast to you. I'll put a link in the description as well. Thanks, I've man. also, yeah, I mean, I've also heard that Tim has a very soothing voice. And if you're, <laughs> if you're having a hard time falling asleep at night, That's um, right. my dulcet tones, he can do that for you. Sleep. I yes. just got another email. This woman said she listens to me when she falls asleep. Yeah. I I think it'd be terrifying to have me haunting your dreams. <laughs> yes, indeed. So give give Tim a listen. Uh, he can help you in your spiritual journey and with your insomnia all at the same time. That's right. Two for one. Awesome. Thanks, Tim. We appreciate Bye, it. Bye, brother. Love you, man. Love you too. Bye.